The point of score study is to get in your mind your ideal version of the piece. Mm. And what we need before, by the time we get to that first rehearsal, is to have that really clear. It doesn't mean that it's inflexible, but it needs to be really, really clear because then the job of rehearsals is to try and get the ensemble as close to that vision mm. as possible. I think for me, when I flipped from starting with recordings to starting with the score, that that's the key to opening up that imagination. Hi, I'm Ingrid Martin. And I'm Tom Graydon. And you're listening to Season 2 of the Conducting Artistry Podcast. I'm a conductor based in Melbourne, Australia, and I work with everyone from beginner bands to professional orchestras. I'm a fourth-year trombone student studying at the University of Melbourne. I'm doing an internship with Ingrid, following her around and learning about conducting. This season of the podcast, we're going to be discussing what players need from conductors from before the first rehearsal to after the final performance. Now, what about score study? Yeah, score study. That's a topic all of its own and, and maybe one day <laughs> I'll do a podcast just about score study. Series. Yeah. But I think, yeah, as we've just said, approaching it from this mindset of what the players need is important. Mm. But also I've read a few books that talk about not thinking about the players at all when you're <laughs> score studying in the sense that you don't want to create an interpretation of the piece in your head that is sort of dependent on the personnel that you're thinking about that you're going to be doing it with. So say it's the first time you're doing a piece and you know, oh, well, I've got a really, really strong cello section, but my clarinets are less experienced and the tuba player misses half the rehearsals or, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. That or like my principal trumpet player plays so loud all the time. So that's like <laughs> Exactly. And so yeah. if you if you study the score with that really strongly in the front of your mind, mm -hmm. then I think that's going to sort of tarnish or contaminate you really understanding what the composer wanted. Yeah, because in your head, all the cello sections are going to sound awesome and the clarinet bits are going to be a little bit dodgy and the trumpet parts are going to be so loud and the tube is going to be like a little bit uncertain about most of the counting because they weren't at a lot of the rehearsals. <laughs> and, like. and what you're doing is that you're, you're trying to predict things that will happen in rehearsal that yeah. may well happen, <laughs> but they also might not. Mm. And then you might be doing this piece in the future with a different group and you're going to have a totally different set of circumstances. Yeah, but you have in your head this very particular to this group version of the music that you've studied. Exactly. So if you go in with that sort of prejudiced version of mm. the music from the beginning, it's not going to allow you to, I think, realise the full potential of the group, even with its own idiosyncrasies. Yep. So... I think we have to approach the score. I can't remember where I read this or who told it to me, but it's a great concept. As if you have the best ensemble ever and the best musicians ever, 
playing for you. Oh, I think that's in the guide to score study book. Uh, there you oh. go. That must be it. See, Tom's been doing his homework, everyone. <laughs> that it, That's right. It is It is in Frank Batiste's book. Thanks, Frank. Appreciate that. Because if you have that limitless potential mm. in your mind, then that's going to allow your musicality and your artistry and your interpretation completely free reign. Yeah, because I guess it's the only point in the process where you do have no limits because <laughs> everywhere else you're constrained by everything. Yeah, and like the point of score study is to get in your mind your ideal version of the piece. Mm. And what we need before, by the time we get to that first rehearsal, is to have that really clear. It doesn't mean that it's inflexible, but it needs to be really, really clear because then the job of rehearsals is to try and get the ensemble as close to that vision mm. as possible. Yep. So if that vision is not, so first of all, if that vision is not clear, then that's going to make the rehearsal process very difficult and mm. slow and tedious and uncertain. But if that vision is also, uh, I guess, compromised because you've, in your preparation, you've been imagining this imperfect group, which every group is, <laughs> then, yeah, you're not going to have a vision that is, like we said, as free or as has as much potential as mm. it could. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you think that is relevant to how I, as a player, could prepare as well? Um yeah, how, how do you think that plays into the the players in your orchestra? Well, I'm interested to know from you, let's say maybe not even an orchestra piece but a solo piece, what would mm. be your process for preparing if I gave you a brand new piece today? Um, I mean, in a perfect world. <laughs> uh, normally I would discover a new work via a recording. So I would listen to the recording a lot um, and then gradually move away from the recording and have my own idea of, you know, I guess the perfect version. Um, but I think for me, my process is probably a bit flawed because I start with someone else's interpretation and then come up with my own interpretation through like experimenting with my own playing, which is still developing and imperfect um so i think i could actually benefit from a bit more i guess just imagination and less less absorbing other people's ideas and less finding out what i can actually do <laughs> uh, and yeah maybe and more I think like yeah that that process that you just described that's exactly what it was like when i started conducting mm. i did exactly the same thing i just listened to recordings I didn't, and I w read through the score, but I wasn't really, I don't know, experiencing the score or actively reading the score. Yeah. It was more passively reading the score yep. while I was listening to the recording mm. and trying to somehow make those two things line up together. Yeah. And I think because the, the challenge, which is exactly what you've identified, of starting with a recording is especially if you're not experienced with the piece, which is what we're talking about, mm. you 
it's very difficult to get a sense of what is happening on that recording that's interpretation mm. and what is happening that's, that is what's on the score. Yep. So I think for me, when I flipped from starting with recordings to starting with the score, that, that's the key to opening up that imagination. And you mentioned that, you know, just like we had, we've got our imperfect ensembles that are developing, like you're developing as well as a player. So the interesting thing would be for you, if you got a new piece to start with the score and no instrument. Yep. And to just imagine. Yeah. With a completely blank slate. Because the, as we know, interpretation is all about choices. Mm. And if you start with just the score, which is sort of the outline, in a way the score is almost only the skeleton yeah. of what your performance will actually be. You have to make so many choices about how the meat's going to go on the bones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That if you just start, and I don't know, let's say the first note's in A and it's a crotchet, and it's piano, well, there's an infinite number of ways that you could play that A, piano, crotchet. Yeah. And yep. you're, not, you're not constrained by how you normally play an A. Yeah. Or <laughs> the fact that, oh, A is not my favourite note. Or, <laughs> you know, you're just like, oh, what, what could this A sound like? Yeah. And then the next note, well, what could this C sound like? You know. Yeah, that's really interesting. I am actually exploring a new piece at the moment that I have. Uh, I've been listening to a recording of it a lot, but I think it's actually not super useful in lots of ways because the trombonist who's playing the recording is just like really, really good at a lot of things that I'm not good at. So I think it's useful as like, a, oh, that's interesting that this person did this thing with this piece. Um, and they're the only person who's recorded it. Mm. But I think I am going to need to do something different because I just physically can't do a lot of the things that Jürgen Vermeyer can do. Um, <laughs> so that's actually a really interesting idea. Um, I think I might try in my own practice a little bit less play and a little bit more thinking, which I guess is something that I've known I need to do for a long time. But, you know, the more you get reminded of things, the more likely you are to actually do them. When I was teaching horn at school I had a poster on the wall in my room that said think before you play yep. Ingrid so I quoted myself on a sort of <laughs> standard motivational poster that I got nice. off Canva <laughs> and I remember my room was shared with the cello teacher mm. and one day this random cello student came up to me and said oh you're the think before you play person <laughs> nice like, great <laughs> yes, my work I here am. is done <laughs> Do your rehearsals ever feel like Groundhog Day? You get there and you think, I'm sure we rehearsed this last week and it sounded great. But when you do it again, you're back to square one. Then you need the tools in my book, Planning Effective Rehearsals, Tools to Boost Learning and Engagement. In it, there's a whole section on how to help our ensembles retain information from one rehearsal to the next so that you can pick up where you left off and keep progressing. To find out more, visit conductingartistry.com forward slash books. But yeah, I think that thinking is so 
underrated. <laughs> and once I sort of approached conducting in that way, then I approached all my horn teaching in that way of mm-hmm. trying to help students think in, in that way and approach music of thinking first, looking at the big picture first, understanding, okay, when you get a brand new piece of music, don't just start playing from the first bar. Yeah. Look at it with the piano part if it's a solo piece. Mm. What's the structure? What repeats? Oh, it's ABA. Okay. What happens with the dynamics? What's the, the biggest dynamic? What's the quietest dynamic? What's the highest note? What's the lowest note? Mm. Where do you think the climax of the piece is? Where do you think are the other points, important points along the way? And if you start with that big picture, that sort of macro, micro, macro that's talked about in mm. the score study book, before you've even played the first note, you know where you're going. Yeah. Which yep. is totally different to... Um, and this is not what you described you do, but just, you know, without even listening to a recording and not knowing how it goes, yeah. just so the scene pick up the instrument, <laughs> start from bar one, and then, you know, like lots of things go wrong. Yes. And you just sort of keep going and it's, oh, yeah. But, and even by the time you've played through the piece once, if it's in ABA form, mm. then there's already, you play the A section twice and the B section only once. Yeah. So the A section's already going to be better, <laughs> twice as good, because <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's had yeah. twice as many repetitions. But if you know in advance that you can, you know, change your practice, but also your study, your learning of the piece, yeah, appropriately. Yeah. But obviously, listening to music is really good and helpful for all sorts of things. Do you think there is a purpose for listening to music that you're playing? Yes, hundred percent. As a conductor or a musician, hundred percent both. I think it's about where you do it in the process and when. Mm. So one of my first conducting teachers was adamant about no recordings. Don't listen to recordings as a conductor okay. ever. And I sort of did what I was told <laughs> for a while, <laughs> and then also didn't because I learned scores from the recordings, even though he said not to. Yeah, but. The idea that I've developed, and again, I can't remember where it came from, was listening to many recordings once rather than one recording many times. Yeah, okay. Yep. Because then you don't get baked into one version Mm. and you immediately (laughs) hear the differences. Yeah, yep. So with sort of Spotify and YouTube and so many ways to access recordings now, Usually the thing I like to do is try and find the ones that are the most different. Yes. So I just look at the duration and I try and find the yeah. shortest one and the longest <laughs> one because immediately that's going to give you a huge spectrum yeah. of yep. difference mm. and you, you can't get locked into either one. Yeah. It is interesting, even ho- only hearing one recording once, I think as musicians because we're such sensitive listeners – even on one hearing, you can sometimes get sucked into. I think that's how it goes. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so that's why it's good trying to find an opposite one. And you go, oh, hang on. That's totally different to what I just heard. But, you know, do I think it works or could, how could I incorporate this idea? And then, and you then know, find all the ones in between. Both versions critically. And yeah, yeah exactly. And then, you- then you sort of, 
what that does is it helps you answer that question we talked about earlier of what is interpretation and what is on the page. Yes. Yeah. Because you've seen two wildly different interpretations and then you go, oh, so both of them saw the word Allegro. Yeah. <laughs> and their tempi are 20 clicks different or something. Or mm. both of them saw this notation that has no articulation. This person went super long. This person went super short. Interesting. I could do either of those or a combination or neither. Yeah. Yep. So knowing where the, I guess it's sort of where the notation ends and where the interpretation begins. Yeah. I've gotten really interesting re interested recently in second performances of things. Um, like supporting new music is great, but I think supporting new music that's already been written is also really, really important. Um, how do you think this listening thing works when there is only one or two recordings of a piece and you don't have a broad spectrum so that you either listen to one over and over again or you just listen to it once and then like, yeah, how do you navigate that? Yeah, that's really hard. We're often, we're in that situation of there's only one recording mm. or there's no recording is the other yeah. <laughs> situation, which is a different situation. But when there's only one, I'm probably guilty of listening to it a bit too much. Yeah. It depends on how complicated the piece is. Yep. If it's something that I think I can sort of nut out, say on the piano, and I'm a terrible piano player, but to sort of get an idea of it away from the recording, mm. then I would preference doing that. But yep. there's my pianistic ability is so <laughs> low <laughs> that heaps of music I can't do that. And especially if it is new music, yeah. <laughs> chance is very high <laughs> that I can't play it on the piano. So I'm probably going to rely a bit on that recording. As conductors, we're always helping our ensembles to improve their skills. We know the value that practice and constant feedback gives them. Yet it can be hard for us to prioritise our own practice to improve our conducting and teaching skills. Even if we do make the time, we might not even know how or what to work on. In my Conducting Bootcamp course, you can find the conducting solutions to your common musical problems. With over two and a half hours of on-demand video content, Conducting Bootcamp might be just what you need to empower your ensemble and elevate your conducting. All videos are under 12 minutes and most are under five so that you can watch it on your lunch break and apply what you've learned immediately. To find out more, visit conductingartistry.com forward slash learn. Well, the other thing that sort of comes is in this category is a piece that there's no recording, but the composer's giving you the MIDI. Yeah. Yep. Is that useful? It depends. <laughs> uh, it depends on the MIDI and it depends on the piece and how much that music can be realised through the MIDI. Mm. Obviously, the MIDI is interesting because in a way it's giving you a sort of uninterpreted version but yeah, also okay. it's give, usually giving you really terrible sounds. Yeah. <laughs> so in that sense, it is interpreted. It's interpreted <laughs> this by people that can't play their instruments by a computer. But always play exactly in time. <laughs> that's ex exactly. That's exactly in time. It has no rubato. So that, that is an interpretive choice in itself, I guess. Mm. But it, that's a tricky 
situation, I think everyone's going to make their own decision mm. based on the circumstance and the piece of music. But I think you're absolutely right that we have to be giving new music second performances and that even if we maybe over-rely on that first recording, that we could also think about it through the lens of if I'm making a second recording, I'm going to be the other reference point yeah. for someone. Yeah, true. So yeah. do I want to make it exactly the same as that one I've listened to or do I want to do something different? Yeah, I guess it makes it more important mm. that you do something different and you make some deliberate choices about how you want it to go. I think it also points out the challenge of if you are the people or the person that makes the first recording, <laughs> everyone's going to listen to it Yeah, who yeah. subsequently does that piece. Yep. And as someone who's done that a couple of times, you know it's not perfect and and there's always going to be things about it that you think, oh, that wasn't how I wanted it to go or yeah. that wasn't the best time when we recorded it. So yep. it, I think it's important for all of us for any recording to sort of not treat it as the gold standard. Yeah. I don't think there really is such a thing. Yep. And most musicians I think would, they might have favourite recordings of things, but probably you'd if you had lots of recordings, you'd probably cherry pick it. Oh, I love the way that person does this bit. And then I really like the other way that this other ensemble does this thing. And I love the sound of this particular section. And that's the joy of interpretation. So then that's our job is to try and create that mixture of all those things when we do it. So that's why listening to lots is really good because you get heaps of ideas. Mm. So for me in the process, I might listen to a few different ones at the beginning to get a sense of it. Then I'd put the recordings away um, and just – so I'd already would have looked at the score, then maybe listen to a couple, then do the proper sort of deep dive learning the piece, trying to craft my own interpretation. And then, yeah, further along I might pull out the recordings again if I'm stuck on a particular spot of how to interpret it or I think I want some different ideas. Yeah. Then – kind of chuck them away and closer to the concert, no recordings. Yeah. Because I find that sort of interfering with my yeah. my sense of the piece at that point. Yeah. Tom, we spent so much time talking about score study and listening to recordings and preparation. What are you going to take away from this conversation? I think just the importance of imagination and a really clear mental orchestra or mental trombone. Um, I think that's something that I can really develop in as a musician and it's something that I've been thinking about for a little bit but I think it's time to actually knuckle down and learn how to really clearly hear sounds in my head so that I can study music without relying on other people's interpretations quite so much. Sounds pretty great. If you've learned something valuable from today's conversation, then spread the word. Share today's episode with a colleague. Send them a text message, share it over email, or share it in a Facebook group so that lots of people can learn because what we all want is better rehearsals. For more great conducting and rehearsing-related content, check out my website, conductingartistry.com, 
where you'll find on-demand video courses, a blog with plenty of free resources, show notes for this episode and all of our other podcast episodes. And you can also sign up to the mailing list to get quality information like this delivered straight to your inbox.